Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hot Seat with Cognizant Clay. I am your host, Clayton Terrio. Today on the show, I interview George Strombolopoulos. George is an icon in Canadian media. He has been the host of New Music on Much Music, the host and co-executive producer of The Hour on CBC. He also served as the host of Hockey Night in Canada for two years from 2014 until 2016. Currently, George is the host of Strombo on Apple Music. Hope you guys enjoy it. All right. Well, welcome, George. How are you doing today? Golden, my friend. It's nice to see you. How are you? Good, good. It's nice to see you as well. And, and thank you very much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. And I hope the uh, the listeners and the viewers enjoy it. So, George, you, you have quite the story. And, and to start off, I before I get to the disability awareness... I'd love to talk about, you know, a bit of your life, your career, and the the transitions you've made throughout your career. So, growing up, you're from Malton, correct? Yeah, I'm from uh, I'm from uh, Toronto, Rexdale, Jane and Wilson, uh, and then I moved to Malton. I think I was in grade, uh, maybe grade four, something like that, is when I first moved to uh, to Malton, right by the airport. So, yeah, I lived by the airport. Very nice, very nice, and and. You've talked about it in your lives and, and some of your interviews. It, it was a bit of a rough growing up. Can, can you just describe what you mean by a, a rough growing up? Like, what were the conditions like for you? You, you, know, you know what? It was only rough f- when you look at it through history, right? Through through life. But it was, you know, I grew up in, in a neighborhood where there wasn't a lot of money and it was a lot of immigrants. We were immigrants. And uh, it was to me, I mean, I loved it. I have no complaints about it. It wasn't a smooth, easy life but it wasn't a bad life you know i had a i have a great mother and it was a great neighborhood and it was what i liked about it was that you just couldn't take things for granted right like you couldn't take things for granted in my neighborhood you couldn't just go for a walk down the street at night and expect everything to be okay you could hope for it but you couldn't expect it right so it was uh it was one of those kinds of neighborhoods but it wasn't it wasn't by any means terrible and i didn't realize how either complicated or compromised it might have been until I left it, until I, I started reading news reports about it. And people had, they shared their idea of what Rexdale was like or what Jane Wilson and Falstaff, because I lived on a place called Chalk Farm, which was in the news a lot, but you just don't know that when you're a kid, right? You just don't know that kind of stuff. So I'm grateful for it. I, I, I'm, I, it's a huge part of my identity. Like my internal monologue is the kid that I grew up as, you know? Definitely. And I, I think it, it speaks volumes. Like you say, as a kid, you don't really pay attention. It's it's just whatever it is that you, yeah. you kind of adapt to it. And w- what would you say are the top, I'd go top three, like top three lessons you learned as an immigrant and growing up in, you know, a not so sunshines and rainbows neighborhood, if you will. I, I realized that if you're in it for yourself, you're kind of missing the point that so much of why uh, the immigrant experience was so valuable for me and my family was that your family and your community really stayed connected. And so I really learned early the value of that. The community uh, really matters. The other thing that I learned was that the system is not on your side. The system is not on your side. And they may throw you a bone here or there, but they're not on your side. And you have to understand that unless you are a certain kind of person, you're not going to get the, uh, you know, you're not going to get welcome behind the rope, as they say. And so I learned that really early was that um, was that the system was definitely not it would be the education system, the police, the justice system, the government, any of that stuff. Right. Uh, 
And the other thing I learned was that the only things that were going to, well, there's like a, a handful of things that were going to give you an opportunity to kind of get out from where you came from, which is an enormous amount of hard work and an enormous amount of luck. And you need people who have no reason to believe in you to give you a break. You need breaks. You know, it's really, if you're not like, I'm not an athlete, right? So athletes or, or musicians, that's, those are paths out. But if you're neither, I mean, I'm, I'm a musician, but not a professional musician. And if you, unless you have those two things, like there's no working your way up the corporate ladder because we knew the corporate ladder was a lie anyway um, and would lay you off anyway. So, so all those things really, really, really left a mark on me. You know, the other thing too, that I remember is, what I remember is what didn't happen, which is I don't think I was ever asked what I was gonna do for a living. I never had any pressure on me to do anything for a living. I had pressure on me to work, to have jobs, but in my family, we were a jobs family, not a career follow my truth family. That's not who we were. And my mother always taught me, she said, what you do is irrelevant. Like, it doesn't matter. Who you are is important. How do you treat people is important. Like your job, my mother very quickly devalued the accomplishment um, culture that we, that we are raised in, where if you don't do this, you're a failure. My mother never, my mother's only uh, judgment on me was the kind of person I was. And, and I mean that sincerely, like I can't even remember her ever asking me what I was going to do for a living. Definitely. And I think that also speaks volumes, like so much emphasis growing up on what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Well, you change all the time. Like you change your whole life and like yeah. anything can change at any moment. And I think Dude, they're asking, they're asking 15 year olds, they're asking 15 year olds yeah. to make decisions that they expect to be following when they're 70 years old. That's crazy to me, right? That doesn't make sense, but it's just, all, and I know where it comes from. It's partly because they want to train you to be part of their system, but also your parents are just often just trying to make sure you're okay because they know how screwed the system is. <laughs> so they're trying to get you in a position. So I, I think, um, yeah, it's too much pressure for kids. I mean, and, and way less pressure on them being okay. Yeah, definitely. My parents, your parents remind me of my parents, like they never cared what I did as long as I was, you know, nice to people, respected yeah. people and provided something for society, whether it's, yeah. you know, being a, having a million followers on YouTube or, or being a garbage man, like it really doesn't matter. Right. No. And so fast forward a bit to after childhood. So you went to Humber College for radio broadcasting and why did you choose radio broadcasting? Like, what was it about it that was an intriguing area to study for, for you? You know, I, I, I'm the guy that used to call radio stations to request songs when I was 10. I remember calling up requesting Iron Maiden songs on Q107 in Toronto when I was a kid. I was the guy who would call up talk radio stations to engage in political debates when I was 10. So radio was just a big part of my life. I didn't have cable TV. And the only television we had in the house, my mother found in the garbage, and she kept it in her closet in her bedroom. And we were only allowed to watch a couple of shows on TV on Friday nights as a family. So I didn't grow up in a house where TV was the center of the house, right? We just didn't, we didn't, so TV wasn't the thing, but radio was always on. And TV was always presented as the idiot box. That's what they used to call it, right? Radio never was. 
presented that way. It's clearly become that too, in many respects, but it wasn't that in, you know, and it was a place for discussion and great music. So I always just thought radio was an amazing thing. But to be honest with you, I never even considered a career in radio because I didn't know you could have one. I didn't know how it worked. And I was working at a movie theater as an usher in Rexdale at a place called Woodbine Center. And I just thought maybe, maybe in my wildest dreams, I could direct a film maybe my wildest dreams I could do that but because I had seen do the right thing from Spike Lee and it really made me it really inspired me and you know but but even that was never going to happen like there was no chance I was going to be able to do that in my mind no education no money didn't know anybody in the business had no access to camera gears nothing there was just no no chance and so, but I was working at the theater and, but what I did know is I wanted to get a motorcycle license. So I saved up $213, which is what it cost to get a license at the time. And right next door to where I was working at a movie theater, there was a, an adult learning center for Humber College where you would go and pay for your motorcycle uh, license. Cause they would do the motorcycle test in the parking lot of Humber College, which is in my neighborhood, uh, right around the corner from where I worked at the mall. And as I took the course calendar home, cause I was gonna fill out the form, I was flipping through it and I saw radio broadcasting or radio production. And I just kind of went, oh, all right, I guess I'll do that. And that was it. Like, honestly, that was it. I went, oh, really? I didn't know. Okay, cool. And I applied and I, I, my meeting with them was maybe 10 seconds long. And that's maybe 20 seconds, no exaggeration. That's how long my meeting was. It was nothing. Hey, why do you want to get into radio? I don't remember what I said. Cool, thank you. That was it. That was it. That was, it was a one question half-assed answer from a teenager that I gave without even preparing for it because I didn't know the idea of even going to college was not something that we did who go like who goes to college and so I, I never applied to university never thought about university never cared about university still don't care about university I, I know why it's important to some people but it was never part of my wheelhouse and it was just radio at Humber and I went okay I'll do it and then I got a letter saying I'm in and I went weird I get I guess I'm coming in and that's how I started that. So I wanted to do it, but I just didn't know you could do it. Right. And, and that, well, I, I kind of like those stories better where it just happens. It's like, there's no epiphany. There's no, you're flipping through a book. Oh, okay. I'll try it. And then to, yep. the rest of history. So after radio, and, and this is, I remember as a young boy, my sister Amanda's five and a bit years older than me. So much mm -hmm. music was always on. Like she would get the TV before me anyway. She was older. And she would use that to her advantage, trust me. But I remember seeing you on Much Music. And that's honestly one of my first memories of music is you and, and Much Music and, and just, you know, seeing the, the pan out of Toronto. And, and I always liked Toronto as a city, loved going there. Um, and so you're the producer of Much Music, uh, Much Music's New Music and Much News. And what is it about music? I, you're obviously, if people know who you are, and if you don't, George is a huge music guy, but you're huge into music. What was it about music that inspired you to form a career around it? Uh, you know, it's a good question, dude. I don't know, because because I, you, you go back to your earliest, earliest, earliest memories that you have, and my earliest memories, music is a part of it. You know, before my folks split up, I remember my dad had records, vinyl, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Van Halen, Albert King, B.B. King, 
Freddie King, right? The Kings. And so music was important to them. My mother liked Elvis Presley. The Beatles were not really in my house too much, but it was more blues rock. And, and it was really Hendrix and Clapton and Kareem. That was in my house in Zeppelin. So I have those memories. And then I really think the fact that in Toronto, back in the day, there were two radio stations, one called Q107 and one called CFNY. And they were, they were a nirvana for music lovers. And so I think that music was, there was just access to great music contextualization and great music curation. And I, it just became a part of my everything. Also radio is free. So if you have no entertainment mm -hmm. dollars, you have no money, radio, music radio was free. The other thing that I used to do is my mother uh, couldn't afford a babysitter. So what she would do um, um, was she would take me to a library uh, in Rexdale called the Albion Library. And she would, and she'd have to work. So she would drop me off in the morning at the library and she would ask the librarians not to let me leave. So, and that was, and then she'd meet me for lunch, right? So I was basically wandering around the library, reading books as, I don't know how old I was, maybe six, maybe seven, maybe eight by myself, wandering around reading books and sneaking behind the curtain where the adults went and watching movies. Cause in the libraries, they were playing crazy movies too, like Night of the Living Dead, which I saw when I was eight or nine years old in that, or maybe, maybe younger in that theater, but also they had music select collection. So when you're, I would pull out vinyl and I would look at the cover and I would put it on, you know? And I was at the time when Alice Cooper showed up on the Muppet show. And for whatever reason, I was naturally drawn to the darker, eviler kind of music. My mother doesn't understand why, I don't understand why. It was just, it's in my DNA to be drawn to that stuff. And she says from my er, her earliest memories of me, I was drawn to that stuff. So I think music kind of fueled what I was feeling inside and was unable to articulate what I was feeling. You know, you're a young, angry boy, kind of disenfranchised, kind of no path, no plan, no nothing, not like no anything. And the music at the time was right where I needed it to be. It was the beginning of punk rock. It was essentially the beginning of post-Black Sabbath metal. So it was just what I needed at the right time. And I kind of feel like music and I paired with each other when we were really young and we went on this journey together. So it's like, you know, when you're looking at your best friend and go, I guess we're riding. So music became my ride or die right away. And my whole life, it's been a big part of it. Exactly. And music's always there. And, and the thing I love about music is it is universal. Like, like I think of like the, the thing that, that I think of immediately is Billy Talent, how loved they are in Germany and yeah. other European countries. Like it, a lot of their fans probably can barely even speak English, but the music resonates with them in some way. And it's funny you mentioned Alice Cooper, my, my father, my dad, huge Alice Cooper fan, like, always I grew up on him and yeah. and I know your favorite band is The Clash love The Clash London Calling is in my opinion one of the greatest punk one of the greatest albums in general of all time yeah. and, and I grew up on that so in terms of switching from radio to much what was that transition like like what made you kind of transition to TV rather than radio you know I had never thought about it I never planned it to be honest with you. And somebody reached out to me and said, do you want to work at much music? And I, my initial thought was, you know, not really. Cause I, I loved radio and I loved music and I never really, to be honest with you, because I didn't have cable. 
I didn't really equate much music with music. I equated much music right. as being a little bit more poppy, right? Now, it obviously wasn't that, but that's just in my head. You know, I just, I didn't watch it. So I, didn't, I just, I knew that they were more pop based in a lot of respects and that wasn't my thing. Um, but I did know the show, the new music because the new music was on city TV, which back in the day was on channel 79. And we had a, like I said, a beat up TV from the garbage and we had an unwound uh, clothes hanger jammed in the broken antenna and we would move it around to watch the new music. So I remember the new music. So when I was approached to work at much, they said, no, we want you to host the new music. And I thought, oh, I love that show. I, that show means a lot to me. And so it was really just about that, you know, and I, I didn't even really pursue the job. If I'm being honest, we kind of, I met them and I didn't really do anything about it. Then finally, somebody came back to me and said, I guess they thought I was playing hard to get, but I wasn't, I just wasn't really particularly motivated to do it because I loved being on the radio every day, playing songs and interviewing bands. Then they offered me the opportunity to do that on much music. But of course, with much, you got to travel. And I didn't really get to travel much before that. So with them, I got to travel. And that was, I mean, that was the best. So that, that's how that transition happened. And the truth is, it was just me doing the same thing I was doing on radio, interviewing bands, playing videos. It was just doing that on, on a camera. And I'm a pretty comfortable person. Like I'm not, I'm not very self-conscious and about like how I look or how people perceive me. Maybe that's because I listen to a lot of punk and metal that I just don't care what, you know, how that works. But I, so, so I was never uncomfortable on camera. They put a camera on me and I was comfortable. And they said, yeah, you, you're comfortable. I went, yeah, you know, that's it. So that's kind of how it happened. Like most of my career is honestly, what do I, what do I love to be around? Does this give me an opportunity to, to be around it more? Yeah. So, okay, I guess I'll do that. And then, you know, when you get to TV and much music, then things start to change. Then you get more opportunities. Then you learn different things about yourself. You, there's other interests you want to feed and which led to the CBC talk show. So that kind of stuff sort of happened. But, but the beginning of television, in fact, my first TV show I ever hosted was a comedy show um, on a couple of local stations and I wasn't supposed to be the host. They had a host. I was just warming up the crowd in the auditorium and nobody was going to put me on TV, but they had some contract problem with the host and just said, you do it. And that's how I got on television. I just, you do it, okay? And I, and I hosted the show. I don't even remember any of it, but it was, and I'm sure it was cringy, you know, but I just did it with some friends. We just did it. Right, well, that, that, that's, what, that, that's what I love about some life stories is like, it just happened. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. It just, yeah. just random luck. So in terms but, of- But I will, life, say that, I will say this though. I yeah, think, go ahead. I think those breaking points where things just happen do just happen. But what, 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 what has revealed itself to me over time is that what you're passionate about, what you love, what you focus a lot of energy on, and if you're pursuing versions of it, right, it kind of points you in a direction, even if you don't know it. So radio and interviewing clearly became something that I was comfortable doing. But if you look back at when I was a kid, so my mom, like I said, dropped me off at the library she would pick me up for lunch. And then in the afternoon, she would take me to a senior citizen's home down the road. And she would make me go in there and talk to strangers to keep them company. Cause she said, your job as a human being is to be good company for other people. So, and they've lived a life. So I'm a kid, right? By myself wandering a hallway in a senior citizen's home 
while she visited a friend of hers. And so clearly in those early days, my curiosity and my comfort with people was being established, right? So when I became an interviewer, if you started to look, take that big worldview and look back, you're like, oh, I get it. This is the path that you were on, but I didn't know, right? I didn't know. And I kind of like that because it is really a lot less about control and more about does your passion find a way to break through? That's what I like about right. it. Right. Yeah. And I was telling you in the live, my mom used to say, you talk a lot. Like I would talk to anybody and everybody. Like I wasn't scared of anybody. I just mm-hmm. love talking to people, learning their stories and just, just chilling with them, just relaxing mm-hmm. and talking about everything that comes to right. mind. And, and right. that's why I told you, like, I feel like I've found my purpose and the people I've met, like you, Rick Mercer, like, David Shannon, the the lawyer from Canada, also Order of Canada, like, it's just amazing how, like, it's not what you know, it's who you know, is the truest yeah. statement I can think of, like, I've always related to that. Yeah, well, who you know is important, but in a weird way, because I didn't know anybody, right? I didn't know anybody. Uh, and I'm to this day, I feel like a complete outsider in Canadian media. But I never wanted to be an insider. So it was, it, to me, it was always, I was never trying to break, guys like me, kids like me from my neighborhood who we were, we didn't end up in this world, right? So I, I never tried to break into their system. I didn't care about their system. I ended up spending time in the system here and there, but I was always of the mind that I was just gonna do my thing anyway with my people and I'm their people and come what may right but it was never really i never looked at tv or even radio like a thing to achieve i never looked at it like it was a thing for me i didn't care that i didn't you know i don't know if you remember but cbc i never even watched cbc to be honest with you i watched hockey night in canada that's it and i watched the national and i watched the national but this is when i was a kid right but from time to time, I'd pop in and see some stuff. And I just never, I never tried to get into it. So the idea of meeting people was never really part of my wheelhouse. Now, it's very different today, right? Because, because everybody's so connected. You can, it's so easy to meet people now. It is like, I don't know you. You sent me a note. You ended up on my live stream. And here we are, right? Like that never, ever happened before. You, you didn't even know what the radio person looked like. So you, you could be sitting next to them and wouldn't even know. There was no internet. So, or the internet was just a military thing at the time. So the idea of like ways to connect to the industry, now you have so much more in front of you than we ever did. You know, I just had no idea. So we ne- I never tried, to be honest with you, to break in. Exactly. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. In terms of much music, like I'm really curious to know, like what are some of your cherished memories from that time? Because I could imagine you've got lots, but maybe trying to narrow it down a little bit if you can. My what I really remember is how much fun we had. I remember Rick the Temp, Rick Campanelli and I, just how much we enjoyed each other's company, how much we enjoyed it. And so, yeah, the, the thing is that you were interviewing enormous bands every day. For five years, almost every day, there was some incredible artist that was part of your day. So, you know, having Trey from Green Day take my motorcycle and disappear for five hours, you know, being on a plane with you two 
traveling from gig to gig, working with Ozzy Osbourne in Philadelphia and in um, and in Chicago, like the people I grew up loving and listening to, interviewing Joe Strummer in a park, you know, that kind of stuff stays with me, of course. And those are the big highlight memories. But really, it was pretty much all the people that I knew at much. And we were a small team. Everybody really, truly cared about telling good stories about music and culture. And I really, and that's what I hold on to the most because that, I've never experienced that again. You know, I, the closest I've got to that is kind of now with Apple, except because of COVID, we're not in the room together. Right. Right. At much, we are all in this little thing called the environment and we are all working together. The crew was there with you. They weren't in a separate room. The, the whole, you know, where they were playing the videos, they were pressing play right beside you where you were talking. So we were all in this weird space together. And I really, really cherish how much fun we had. It wasn't always easy. It was a pain in the ass sometimes. But looking back, those were glory days, glory days, Clay, to, to be able yeah. to be a part of that kind of run at a place like Much. Because when Much stopped doing that, nobody did it. It was the one and only that did that thing. Yeah, yeah. I remember my sister and I really missed it when it was gone because like it was a blast. Like every day after school, just like Green Day is my favorite band. And I remember the Trey Cool thing vividly. Like he is such a character. Like Ozzy too, what a character. Like Joe yep. Strummer, what a guy. Like it, like you say, you're almost not really starstruck, but you don't really realize the weight of it until you're older. You also see that what I feel like because it was also pre-social media, um, even though there was an element of this for sure. But because I didn't spend a lot of time with pop stars, um, nobody talked about building their brand. In fact, if you talked about building your brand, we didn't like you. Right. So the bands that I liked, it was about music, culture. It was about your energy. It was about all that stuff. But nobody, even though, of course, you wanted to make money and sell out shows and you had logos, of course, all that was there. But that wasn't the driver. The driver wasn't your brand. The driver was what you were about. I'm, I'm talking about like I hosted the punk show and the metal show and the new music, right? So there were lots of those bands that are brandy, but I just didn't cross paths with them too much. And that to me was really influential because um, the bands were still pretty honest at that point. They were still telling you stories and and they understood the value and they weren't trying to be so proper. Now everybody is filtered, right? And mm -hmm. filter culture has its place, but it was unfiltered culture back then. Like bands weren't looking at the video afterwards and approving it. They did the interview. We cut it. We put it on. That was it. And now everything is so filtered and publicist that stuff never flew with me back then certainly not on the shows i was working on um so yeah it was just a rare rare time definitely i, I miss those days i'm i'm 28 now so i i do slightly remember it like yeah like social media is still even relatively new to somebody my age like the kids now like my nieces know how to search videos on youtube they're not even five like like yeah. holy cow like amazing i'm excited to see what they do with it yeah, totally. me too. I, I I hope it I hope it goes positively and not negatively. So after much, you were the host and co-executive producer of George Strombopolis tonight, which was from 05 to 2014. And I, I remember like from grade eight on watching that and 
really enjoying how you weren't the cliche journalist. It wasn't like the the easy questions. You asked the deep questions to get to know people and kind of provoke an actual thoughtful answer instead of short form. So you had like Oprah, Michael J. Fox, John Craig Chance, Samuel L. Jackson, like the, the list goes on and on. But from much to that, being a host and like of your own show and, and being that kind of journalistic style, what was that transition like to go from much to that? Like, I'm really curious to know about that. You know, what's funny is uh, I used to wear this one kind of belt on much music every day. And then when I went to the talk show, I wore that belt on the talk show as well every day. And I'm wearing it now. Like I wear it all the time anyway. Right. So, so it's the same belt. Um, to be honest with you, it wasn't a big transition for me. And I think it goes back to that, the way I kind of view myself and what I do. I did not expect that show to work. I did not expect us to get 10 years out of it. I'm grateful we got 10 years out of it. Um, it was the right amount of time for it at that time. The last late night talk show in Canada was Mike Bullard. I was a fan of Mike. Um, but what was really important to us when we started that show was that we didn't try to replicate a US style late night talk show. We were just going to do a conversation with a few jokes and some interesting interviews uh, and some perspective thing with just me in a red chair. That was the idea. It was had to be real. It had to be casual. It had to be closely tied to my personality. So usually what happens is you take a format of a show, you got the desk with the chair, and then you just find the person who fits the suit and fits the chair, then they bring their own thing to it. But the show, the format is the thing. Late night, the Tonight Show, like the Daily Show. A form, and the Daily Show is different because John cre- recreated that from Craig Kilborn. Um, John is the greatest. John and Letterman were the greatest to be. And But what we didn't do is we weren't, trying to replicate a show and find a host to take over. So we didn't have to do the same things that those talk shows do. We were intentionally inventing our own format. And what we did was we sent it around how I, what I was interested in. And one of the reasons they brought me over was because I'm interested in a lot of things. I'm a very curious person, but I'm also just passionate and open about the world. And I want to understand and I want to learn and I want to I want to enjoy. And so we kind of designed the show around that. We kind of designed the show around that. And, and I think that's why it worked because nobody tuned into the show and thought, because lots of people didn't like me, but no one watched the show and thought he doesn't care. He's not curious about the guest he's talking to, or he's being disingenuous. Everybody knew it was authentic. Like me or not, that was irrelevant because not everybody's going to like you and that's okay. And sometimes they have very valid reasons for not liking you, but no one could ever look at it and go, it's fake because we weren't faking it. Right. And I think that's one of the things I liked about it. And, and, you know, those early days at CBC, they did a really good job of protecting me from the kind of networky CBC kind of bullshit that happens uh, in a lot of networks. They protected me from that because first of all, they knew that I wasn't going to put up with it, but also that they knew that it's, CBC and a lot of Canadian networks had a real history at that time of crushing anything that's different. And the CBC people, a guy called Heaton Dyer, helped create a space that um, allowed our differences to be valued as opposed to taken away. 
Right. Yeah. And that's good to see. So like CBC has, has its faults for sure, but I, I felt like it was very genuine and, and I'm really curious about the process. Like the, the thing that amazes me about athletes, musicians, podcasts, whatever it is, is the process involved. What kind of like preparations and techniques did you apply to be ready for when the cameras started rolling? You know what it was? It was just research. It was just research for interviews, like understanding a kind of rough idea of what we wanted to accomplish, not not accomplish in that interview, but what we wanted to do in the interview. Um, but you're you're going so hard and so fast all day that honestly, by the time the show starts, you're already spun, you know, and you you don't even have time to really apply all of that extra layer of like and this is the thing and i'm i'm a hyper strategic and i'm very conscious of how i i've always wanted to get better on the air to this day i'm practicing all the time i'm, I'm evolving changing things and back then i was aware of it for sure but it was there was just so much effort that went into just getting it ready that by the time the guy uh, Kevin, our floor uh, director, our, 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 our AD, would go George Strobelopoulos, and the crowd would applaud, and I would walk on. By the time that happened, I was like, "What am I doing? What are we doing now?" Because you're just running around all day trying to to put it together. The other thing was that because I was professionally me for a living, I didn't have to put on a face, right? Like I was just me. So I'm the guy. I'm gonna sit over here. I'm gonna do this thing. We're gonna talk and. Something that's also really important for, for people who are broadcasting to pay attention to is the concept of the word comprehension. You, if you comprehend what you're trying to do, then lose the ego stuff and the things that make you nervous on air. You know how people say you gotta be a little bit nervous? All mm -hmm. that you hear, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. I've never been nervous on the air. You know, maybe like when I was 17 or eight or 19, my first radio show before I went on, but for two seconds, but the moment I just settle in, I've always been, yeah, I'm just me, whatever. And, and I've always been that way. So I've never been nervous on television. I don't think ever in my life. And I wasn't then I wasn't the first time I wasn't the last time. It's just not part of my wiring, you know, and so when I had to sit down and do the show, the reason I could be so comfortable was because I was just being me. And I kind of did away with all the, the shit that gets in our minds when you have to be on mm -hmm. camera or on mic, or that, that can I, oh, I don't know, will they like me? It doesn't matter because it's not about me. It's about what we're trying to accomplish today with the, with the content. So once you take yourself out of it, it's just, now you're just, you're servicing the argument, you're servicing the conversation. That to me was the thing. And that made it a lot easier to be on the air. Definitely. And I can, I can relate when I started my podcast, like I was nervous for a very brief time. And then I realized like, it doesn't matter how famous or how not famous somebody is, they're people. Yeah. Everybody is a person. Like a lot of my friends, even at our age, like are, are starstruck by hockey players or, or actors or musicians. It's like, they're just a person who's really good at their craft. It's not like nice I've craft. met Tiger Woods walked by me at the 2013 PGA championship. And it was like, cool, Tiger Woods. Like yeah. he's just good at golf. Like it's not a big deal. I met Phil Kessel. I've met yeah. Sundin. Like I always told my parents always told me, don't idolize them. No, that, no. that will just make them feel awkward. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's an old punk rock ethos, which is kill your idols. Right. Don't, 
don't idolize. However, I will say this. I There's an important thing for me, which is I'm never starstruck by anybody, but I am hyper appreciative of what they've done and what it means to me. So when I got to, to talk to Michael Jordan, I was just very aware of the fact that, yo, man, that's Michael Jordan. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not just some guy. That's Jordan. That's six for six, no game sevens in the final. Like that's, that's the greatest. So I was very aware. So I'm hyper appreciative of it. And I think I'm definitely a fan, but I don't let my fandom get in the way of the conversation. Exactly. And that's exactly how I've, I've taught myself to do it. Like tell them you appreciate them too, because they appreciate hearing that. Yes, of it's, course, it's, for sure. You screaming and freaking out just makes it feel awkward, at least as far as I'm concerned. Totally. It definitely does. And so, and moving on also, which is big, because I know you're a huge hockey fan. Um, you were the host of Hockey Night in Canada for two years from 2014 to 2016 and NHL and Sports. So I know it didn't go as long as you wanted, but as a hockey fan, what was it like to host such a Canadian pastime? It was cool. It was cool. You know, it really was. It was a, it was a show that I watched quite religiously. Um, it was a show that I valued quite a bit. I knew it was going to be an impossible scenario because I knew that the people at Sportsnet were not all on board with me. I knew that, but I thought it would be fun to try, you know? And But here's the thing. I already hosted my dream job, which was the new music. Like mm -hmm. to me, the new music was the best show you could host in Canada by far. And then the other two were Hockey Night in Canada and The National. And I got to create my own late night talk show with a team, which was my version of the national. So I did that. And the last one in the game was like, well, hockey's the last one. That's the last of the three shows that I care about. Right. So I knew that it wasn't going to last very long, but I wasn't going to let that stop me from doing it. So I just said, let's do it anyway, because at least I'll have been able to do it. And very few people in their life get to host hockey night in Canada and only one other person in history has hosted Hockey Night in Canada, the new music, and his own late night talk show. So I feel very, very lucky, very privileged to have had that opportunity. But yeah, and it didn't go as long as I, to be honest with you, it only ended one year uh, earlier than I thought it was gonna go. I thought I could maybe do three years of it. I didn't wanna do it for a lot longer. Um, and, but two years, that was fine. That was fine, I didn't mind it. I got to do it, it was cool. And I can imagine it's, it's it's very a very interesting job because of the behind the scenes stuff. But what were you hoping to accomplish as the host? You know, there's a great team who make hockey in Canada, right? There's a great team for sure. Uh, what was I, what I was hoping to do was uh, bring the tradition of hockey night in Canada into what I thought to the next generation. You know, what I was told by Rogers that I was told by the guys in charge there that when I was the host, the ratings went up with people under 30 and with women. And that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to wide. I felt, I feel, and I still feel this way that most sports broadcasting, most is very exclusive and mm -hmm. it, and it's, and it's missing most, not all, but most is missing the actual the actual value and cable sports doesn't really understand Canada. 
right? The same way that Hockey Night in Canada did. And I wanted to help take the Hockey Night in Canada thing. And actually, I was just trying to do what they asked me to do, which is to make it a wider, more accessible kind of thing. Um, but when you get there, you realize it's like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't going to work because that's not actually what the broadcaster wants. So they say what they say to get you there and then they change it. But which is totally fine because that's the business. So I harbor no, I have no ill will. I, I, I don't take any of it personally, right? Even, even if it was personal, I still don't take it personally, right? But I was trying to, I was trying to make the show in line with where the culture was moving, right? That's what I was trying to do. You know, there was no, there was no room for misogyny and homophobia and, um, transphobia and racism, of course, but also even just like discrimination. I just didn't want any of that in a show I was hosting, right? And it was really important to me, but you know, change is incremental and you have to kind of like chip away at the stone in different ways. And I felt like we were going in a really good direction. You know, I was addressing trans kids on the air in Hockey Night Canada my first year, and I think that was important. Um, and I got some grief for it from hockey fans, but I don't care because they were wrong, right? They right. were wrong. And it's always the case that if you're pushing for more inclusivity, there will be people who just don't like it and will pick on things that they don't like about you. That's totally cool. I'm built to take the beating, so it didn't bother me, right? I'm like, I know, I know how hard this was going to be publicly, but I didn't think it was going to be hard to do. Here's the other thing. They hired me to be the host of a show. I was a very experienced host. So I never tried to be a hockey person. I, and I, I don't think the, like I, I tried to be an experienced host, which is what right. I am. So I think what happened was that because, you know, Ron spends an awful lot of time talking about hockey as like from the, 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 the hockey perspective, I didn't think it was like, I don't need to do that. I'm not a hockey player. I'm not a professional hockey player. I don't care what anybody who doesn't play hockey thinks about a play. You know, I like the, right. like the X's and O's. I don't care. I never did. If you didn't play and you're not a coach or a player, your opinion on X's and O's are just talk, but I don't really, I'm not going to learn really. Right. I want to hear it from players. So, uh, so I was trying to, to, to be a host, right? Ron is so intrinsic to so connected to the game. He can do it because Ron's really special, right? I know he's in trouble now, but Ron's really special. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the career he built is very hard to build. And so I never tried to be Ron. So like, why am I going to go in there and try to do what Ron did? I'm going to try and do what I think this job needs for me now, which is to be a host and basically a ringleader, like a circus, you know, ringleader kind of thing, which I, which is what we did. You know, it was fast moving. It was fun. Um, and had they stuck with it, I think it really, really, really would have turned into the right show. But um, I had always felt that most, not all, but most sports broadcasting was so far behind the times culturally. It was so just inherently exclusive, like I said. I just didn't think that was good enough anymore. And dude, you saw this last year. You saw last year when things reached the forefront, how ill-prepared most, not all, but most sports broadcasters were for this conversation. They were just like, uh, what, what's that? What we, we, I was trying to get them there and not just me, like lots of people on hockey were trying to get us there. You're right. And that I'm glad it's starting to get there now. I think that's great. I watched it the other night. I watch hockey all the time. 
It's not the only sport I watch, but I watch it all the time. And it never bothered me to watch it. I'm like, oh yeah, I used to do that show. Cool, whatever. Let's let's watch the game, you know? Um, so that's what I was trying to do. And I met I was met with a lot of resistance. People did not want us to be more inclusive, for sure. You should have seen the notes I got from people. Not just not just fans, but in the business, right? They did not want it to be more inclusive. And that's okay, because that's just that's my job. My job is to go and shake it up a little bit and then the, and, the, and now it's moving more more in that direction not because of me but it was because that's where the culture is moving exactly and I, I think it is moving in the right direction like you got Harner Ryan Singh you've got Jennifer Botterill Cassie Campbell David Amber Stewart on there like people of color and women and, and well but yes you're, you're right but it's not just the diversity on camera it's the diversity behind the scenes that's important yeah but also it's about making sure the old school hockey people, like the ones who are there with them, so making sure they understand what this is, understand bias, understand microaggressions, understand progressive workspaces. That's the kind of stuff that has to happen too. I don't know if that's happening there now. Um, and I think on-camera inclusivity and diversity is really important, but it is not the only thing. Now, remember, right, Clay, I worked at Much Music and City TV. So the new music was on City. City TV in Toronto was very inclusive. People with ethnic names were on TV. People with ethnic names were working behind the scenes. So that's what I watched. So I didn't grow up where, like, I just grew up thinking that's how it, of course, that's it. You know, you get, like, my last name's Strombolopoulos, and I had a show called George Strombolopoulos Tonight. And on CNN, I had a show called Strombolopoulos. It's a ridiculous name. But it so but I grew up in the city TV world where, yes, yes, of course, you're supposed to be ethnic, you're supposed to reflect your city, right? So I was so when I got to, to TV, because I never really thought about city or much as TV. When I when I got to like TV, I went, wow, this is not what I grew up in. This is when I worked at much music, Denise Donlin was running the show. Right. So and when I worked at CBC, Kirsten Stewart ran the show. So I when I was in radio or sports, I only worked with men. When I worked in TV, I only worked with women. The person who brought me on board at CNN was a woman called Amy. So I only so I've just been very lucky that I've kind of worked in very inclusive environments always. So even if I had bias, it was challenged all the time and I was learning and growing because I was around the right people. Right. So. I think that's really important. So when I got to hockey, it was like, wow, it's like it's it's like this culture is not the city I grew up in. It is not the city. Even though I know hockey fans are diverse, it's just hockey media is basically run by the same three people up until the last few years. Like if you look at who started TSN, who started Sportsnet, who worked at the score, and who ran Hockey Night in Canada, you're generally it's a handful of guys. Yeah. Right? The same guys. So of course it's going to take on their version of the country because that's their experience right so and um, and that's i just wasn't from that and it became very apparent to them that i wasn't from that world definitely and it's like you say it's it was a good two years and you got what you wanted out of it so i feel like a bit of a broken record going back to radio but during that time on the hour in hockey night you were the host of the strombo show on cbc radio mm -hmm. and then if you fast forward to december 2019 you started strombo on apple music which great show by the way i love it i've been listening to it 
Thank you. Um, no problem. And they're both freeform talk shows focused on music, which I feel like freeform is kind of your style. It seems to suit you the best. Just kind of go whatever direction it takes you. And and as you said, radio was always your one of your favorite things to do. Do you feel like that was always going to be your fallback? No, I never thought of it as a fallback, to be honest with you. I never did. I, I suppose I never think of anything as a fallback. I I just like to do it. Like, I like to do it. And I'm old, and I've been a, lucky enough to do a lot in my career. I've had a very lucky career. I've been doing this, this year is 30 years since my first on-air shift, right? 30 years, pretty much on the air, either TV, radio, or digital, nonstop since then. And... I'm, I realized that there's something really valuable in doing what you like, like doing what you like. And life's hard. And why make it harder? So I just, I'm very efficient that way. It's like, oh, no, that's not good for me. I don't need that shit in my life. I'm not doing that. I like doing this, right? And yeah, I started the Strombo show even earlier when I was doing at the talk show. It was a talk show on CFRB. So it went from that to Chorus, where it was a music show, to CBC, where it was a music show, and now I moved it to Apple, because it's the same idea, which is that music matters, and those who make the music matters, but really what matters is how we all feel about it, and how we connect to it. So to me, I feel like it's the same thing I've, I've been doing since my first pirate radio show in 1991, you know, which was a pirate radio station in Rexdale, and that to me is, I feel like I've been doing kind of the same thing my whole career. <laughs> which is the thing I was doing my whole life, which is playing my friend's songs on cassette in my tape deck in my mom's car. So it's kind of the same thing, which is, yo, you got to hear this tune. My whole life has been, yo, you got to hear this tune, you know? And so it's never really been a fallback to me. I kind of feel like radio has been my core. You know, radio has been my core and everything else has just been stuff that I do on top of it. But radio has been the constant, you know, it's, it's never been the right. fallback. It's been the thing. Exactly. And, and like that free form, I, I could imagine that would be my style. Like I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not organized, but I'd rather not be so scripted that it, it doesn't seem genuine. What is your favorite part about free form music and, and those two shows? You know, it's only free form in uh, on the CBC show in terms of the music we play, but there's a really uh, interesting piece of advice I was given a long time ago which I would pass on to you and anybody who's interested in this line of work, which is seem loose, but be tight, right? right? You you need a hidden structure. You need to know what you're doing. And to me, that is not the enemy of freeform. It allows you to be freeform in the places where you need to be. I, I kind of think a, a lot of what I think about connects to Michael Jordan, right, and his career. When Michael Jordan won the Defensive Player of the Year award, then you got the sense of the full player because anybody could dunk. Offensive prowess was the flashy, easy thing. Could you stop, right? And could you make a stop? So to me, I've spent a lot of time in my career making sure that my fundamentals and my defense are tight so that when I want to do a swirling 360 dunk, right, I know that when I land, I'm landing on good fundamentals. And that's really important for what we do for a living, what I do, what you do for a living, is that this is a craft. And it is nothing more than that. Like the, 
talking is easy. Anybody can do it. Talking on a mic's a little bit harder. Talking on a mic and knowing how to tell a story, a little bit harder. Now finding a way to use your voice in a way that you can get people to pay a little bit harder. So you start adding all these layers that make it a little bit more challenging and then finding a way for an audience to care about you, which is an impossible thing to predict, but you hope for that. That's just to get through all those layers. It's just a craft. And so I really focus on the craft. So when I go on the air, people think it's just, ah, oh, loosey goosey, you know, sitting down, blah, blah, blah. I'm so casual. That's true. But I've done a lot of work to know where I'm going, you know, like I know what I'm doing. And to me, it's, it's seem loose, but be tight. Right. A bit of an oxymoron, but scripted improv basically like, well, yeah, or not, not, yes, not script. Um, it's knowing what I want to talk about, but knowing the fundamentals of a good story is the, because I don't really do a script, right? I, it's like, what are we talking about? I gotta hit this point. I gotta hit this point. I think about it, write it down, think about it, do it. But it's more about knowing what is a good story? How do you connect to people? Are you even paying attention to who's listening or watching you? Or are you just talking? Like all these little things you have to do. I, I was lucky enough to, I was on a plane once and, and I, was, I was sitting on a plane, you know, your seat's empty beside you. And I'm just like, uh, I wonder who's gonna sit beside me. And it was Jigsaw from the movie Saw. He went and sat right beside me. And as he approached me, I was like, oh shit. Oh no, this is Chris Jigsaw. He sat down beside me. He's a very uh, well-traveled actor. And we spent like a five-hour flight talking about craft. He was asking me questions about how I did it. I was at, because he had watched the show because he was shooting Saw in Canada. I was asking him questions about how he did it. And it was, and both of us broke down to the same thing. How do you direct yourself? What's your intention? All this other stuff that really mattered. And it's just craft. It's craft. And if you're really good at the craft, it seems like, you paid no attention to the craft. Right. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. That must have been an interesting conversation. That's great. I love him. His name is Tobin. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, he's awesome. I, I, I actually really liked the first song. I thought that was a brilliant movie. But so on my after my like life story talk, I do what's called rapid fire. Um, just ask you random questions. It's like four or five questions. Just random shot in the dark questions. So I know this is a long list. This can be anybody, family, famous or not. Who would be your favorite person from Ontario? Oh, I mean, my mother or my uncle Paul and my sister. So my family, like my, I have a very small, tight family, but my mother, my uncle Paul, my sister, like my aunt Stephanie, like my little small family, they're my favorite people in the province for sure. But if it's people I don't know, uh, two of my best friends, uh, a guy called Jim Richards, who's on CFRB, who you should interview for this show, by the way, and also Bob Makowitz, who is on TSN, who works with me on the show, like hanging out with them. You know, it's this thing when your heroes are your best friends and your best friends are your heroes, it's pretty good. You're very lucky, right? So they're my, like, I love being with them. Definitely. Great answer. I, I love those personal answers a lot better. Um, I, I think your, your Instagram bio may be an indicative of this. I'm not sure. But being vegan, what is your favorite thing to eat? Oh, pho. Yeah, soup. Yeah, I thought yeah, that yeah, was yeah. coming. Yeah, pho. I mean, pho or pho, I guess it's pronunciation, is my thing. I, it's, it's better in Ontario, in Toronto than it is here in LA. Um, it's, the pho here is fine, but there's some place, like there's one place in Toronto called Golden Turtle that is, that's the top of the food chain for me. And eating that, like I'm coming back to Toronto in a couple of weeks and I cannot wait. 
I cannot wait. That's one of the things I'm so excited about. Um, so some of my favorite people in Ontario that aren't in my family are the, the women who run Golden Turtle. Like they, oh, wow. that's, because it kind of represents everything I love about the city and everything I love about my childhood, which is that it was very diverse and it was very different and food was always different and we're learning and yeah. So pho, pho is my, uh, for sure, for sure. Oh, look, I like a great burger and I like spaghetti. I like a great pasta. I like all meals, a Greek salad and Greek potatoes and a, a bowl of pho. Oh my goodness. And I also love pierogies immensely. Pierogies are good. I'll have to check out Golden Turtle when lockdown's over. Being high risk, I haven't been many places, but when I, I'm going to check that out for sure. I'll take your word for it. Um, so I know The Clash is your favorite, but being a music guy, I really wanted to ask was apart from The Clash, which I know is hard to leave out, but who are your top three favorite bands other than them? I mean, probably Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, you know, but it's it's you too as well. It's 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 um it's the who, but I don't think I've listened to a band more than I've listened to Led Zeppelin in my life. Like, I don't think I've ever listened to that. Public Enemies high up there, but Led Zeppelin, U2, The Clash, Pink Floyd. Those are my bands. British Invasion, I like Be- it. I like Beastie it Boys, the Beastie Boys, yep. you know, of course, yeah. I know, I know Propagandi's up there for you. Well, Propagandi's my favorite Canadian band of all time. Yeah, hands down. Propagandi is... Uh, they're a great lesson for everybody that the older you get, the more ferocious you can be, uh, the more lovely you can be, the more inclusive you can be, but also the more ferocious. Uh, Propagandy is by, by far my favorite Canadian band, by far. I'll have to, I, I gotta listen to them. I, I have in the past, but I gotta, I gotta get back into them there. They're very interesting band. So last question of the rapid fire, and I know this might be hard. This is always the hardest one, but if you could be anybody living or dead for 24 hours, who would you choose? Iggy Pop in 1971. I'd be Iggy Pop. I bet you in 19... No, no. Iggy Pop in 1969. I bet you Iggy Pop had the most fun that anybody's ever had, ever. I would like to be Iggy Pop for 24 hours in 1969. I love that answer. It's a great answer. Um, So back to the questions, and and this is the main reason I have you on, which is the disability awareness, which is very dear to my heart. So I'm going to start with Rick Hansen because he has been an idol with you for a while. So you, Rick is obviously a big advocate, but you as an able-bodied person are a huge supporter of disability. And you had a, a poster of Rick Hansen on your wall. Why, why was Rick Hansen such an inspiration and positive role model for you as a young man? You know, Rick had this ability and it's a really rare ability to look at his situation and say this isn't really about me this is about us and i remember he didn't say that exactly but i remember seeing an interview with him when i was really young something to that effect and i thought this guy's awesome this guy's awesome and then what he did you know, and then growing around the world, like that stuff was really impressive, of course. But I just liked how he, maybe because, you know, when I grew up, when no one expects anything of you, I really, I really like 
I really like people who can be surprising, you know, and you know this, the conversation around disability today is very different than it was back then. And Rick was amazing. It was also Rick's like lovely. He's so lovely. He's so nice. So when I got to meet him and work with him and interview him and like, say, I fucking love this guy. You know, I love this guy. And so I'm, I'm, I'm great. So yeah, I don't, so I don't exactly know because my wall was pretty much all punk and metal bands, mostly metal bands all over my right. wall. Kid, right. Florida ceiling. Eric Peterson, this actor who was in a movie called the Heart King of Saturday night. He was there and Rick Hansen. But, but King of Saturday Night was based on a musician. Rick was, I think, the only non-musician on my wall for a long time. Um, the only non-musician on my wall for a long time. And I don't exactly know why it reached me so deeply, but it did. It was inspirational, but I'm not really the kind of guy that's looking for motivation or inspiration. I don't... I'm not wired to require it externally. I've never really, it always comes from in here. And maybe it's because I grew up in a family where adults go to work, right? We gotta work. So I just was inspired by my family more than anything, right? And inspired by my neighborhood. I I come from a really hardworking neighborhood and I was really inspired by all them. And I guess I just looked at Rick Hansen like a blue collar dude who was just working hard and his work was making people's lives better. And for some reason, and I don't know why this is, but for some reason, maybe it's because I hated the system so much. I looked at anybody that was bucking the system as a hero. So I knew the system didn't like poor people. I knew the system didn't like different people. I knew the system didn't like disabled people. And when I say like, what I mean is protect. Right. And so I really liked people who I felt were punk rock and were fighting it. And Rick was punk rock to me as a kid, you know, that he was just like, you know what, here I am, here's what I'm going to do. And I really liked that. I valued that a lot. And my, my dad humor for the day is you had metal bands and metal chairs on your wall. So there you, you go. You know it, you know it, dad joke. I love it. <laughs> but but the, the, the thing that I admire most about people like you, Rick Mercer and other able-bodied advocates are you don't you're not inspired by us because we're disabled you're inspired by us by what we do and i can tell you i can speak for like 99 percent of the disability community is we absolutely detest being called inspirational just because of our disability like totally it's the most annoying and cringe thing like i've been on the bus and people have said oh you're so inspiring what i'm inspiring for doing a mundane thing by being on the bus like I'm just getting from point A to point B, just like you. And, and right. I, I thank you and Rick and, and all the people in the able-bodied community that in, are inspired by us for us. And that means the world to us. This is it. You know, it's, and I, I, I've never really, I understand that people want to be involved in areas, causes, fundraisers. I understand why people want to be involved in things that is closely connected to them, that they have a personal story with. Right. I, I, I don't, I, I don't. I don't need it. I don't need that connection. I just look at a human being and go, man, your life could probably be a lot easier if the community understood that you you should have accessibility. Like, why isn't there a ramp? Like, why isn't why isn't it thought of in planning, which it is now more, of course. Um, so I was like, well, wait a second. If if I if I can, or and I know Rick uh, Rick's a, Rick's a major inspiration to me. 
Rick is a major inspiration to me. And it's like, wait a second, we can use our voice or our platform or whatever to just go, hey, come on. If one of us suffers, all of us suffer. And you're right. You're Look, it is inspirational when somebody in any walk of life can, or any part of life can, you know, outkick the coverage, as they say, can do something like, fuck, that's hard to do. But but it's not just because you're you have a disability that's not you know that's that's never been part of my thinking i don't know why maybe it's because my mom always taught me that just because someone has a different experience doesn't mean they're different right it's just a different experience there's a different day-to-day but somebody who has a a mental health challenge that isn't visible they have a different day i have a different day People who deal with depression have a different day. Some of the happy, okay, Rick Hansen told me, and I'm sure you've heard this, Rick Hansen said if he could go back and do it all over again, like prevent the accident that put him in the wheelchair, he wouldn't do anything differently. He said, because his life was aimless before this. And I remember him saying that thinking, man, that's a thing. That's a thing to say that, right? Because people wouldn't assume it, at least not everybody would. But he, he really honed in on a thing that I think is really important is, what's your purpose? And he found his purpose. To me, your, a purpose is inspirational, regardless of who it comes from. Regardless of who it comes from. Somebody who, who makes their way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's never been, it's a, I, I know why people say that to you. Like, they're like, it's, hey, you're really inspiring. It's partly right. because they don't have the tools and the language to understand it. Because we're never taught it. Like my generation, we're never taught that. So successive generations have, have better tools and language to learn how to communicate. We never learned, you know, we never learned that shit. And so I can understand when someone looks at you and it's just like, ah, oh, what do I say? And I would just look over and say, <laughs> say fucking nothing. He's going to work, <laughs> leave him alone, <laughs> you know? And, 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 but I get it. Like I get, I get why it's like, why people oh, don't know too. what to do. Yeah, yeah. But I can imagine you must get that a lot. Oh, I do. But it, it's, I've learned to just smile and, and say, thank you. Like, what else am I going to say? Like, even if I'm annoyed, I'm not going to tell you to fuck off. Like it, I appreciate right. the sentiment. I know what they're trying to say. It just comes out weird. And it's, yeah. it is awkward, but at my age now, it's like, well, if that person's with their child and I lash out, well, maybe right. that kid will, will be even more intimidated to go up to a man in a wheelchair or with a walker or a woman right. with one or whoever it is, like, I don't want to change that little child's perspective. And the one thing I'm absolutely grateful for is teaching my nieces that I'm Uncle Clayton, I'm not the guy in the wheelchair, I'm still Clayton, the chair is just what gets me around. And that's, that's it. Rick is definitely like, oh, my God, like, he's just an amazing person. Rick Mercer and Rick Hansen, they're two of my top, top people. So in terms of the disability what are some charities that are really dear to your heart that focus on people with disabilities well i suppose you know again it's that wide definition of disability i uh, i started a scholarship with the canadian music therapy trust fund and it um is to help offset some of the costs of somebody who wants to become a music therapist because what they do is provide music therapy in the hand of a skilled professional which is different than just liking a song um for people in various who are dealing with various realities. Sometimes it's cognitive, sometimes it's physical, 
sometimes it's palliative. So that is that is an enormous uh, uh, enormous thing that I that I care deeply about. Um, it is not results based, right? There's no mm -hmm. there's no cure at the end of this. This is about quality quality of life and comfort, and to me that's really powerful and meaningful. So that's something that I and that's why I started a scholarship. We've been doing it for a few years now, and I'm, I, I I love it. I can I can attest to to music and like when I'm having a bad day music just it changes you like yeah. concerts the the one thing the weird thing about concerts is I forget like I don't think about it very much anymore the disability like it, it's who I am it's it is what it is nothing I can do but when I'm at a concert it's it's almost like it's almost like nirvana it's like it, there's nothing that can stop you in that moment and even bands I don't even know. I just love live music. And that's probably the first thing I'm going to do when the lockdown's yeah. over is, is go to some festivals. Because I just bought, I just bought tickets to Guns N' Roses show. It's, I hope it happens in August and I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I feel you. Yeah. Live music is, I mean, I can't, it, we've gone so long. We've gone so long without seeing longest I've ever gone in my life since I first started going. Right. Like for all of us. So yeah, I, it's incredible. You want to see some pretty in, amazing stuff. So I've been to some big ass metal shows, 20,000 people metal shows, the mosh pits really intense. And there's a guy in a wheelchair and the, 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 the other uh, people in the mosh pit will hoist him up. And this, and like you, like mosh pits can be so intense. And I've seen, especially the metal shows be really inclusive and uh, with a bunch of guys I've seen in wheelchairs, just being held up on top of the crowd. And it's so amazing. I've seen that at Billy talent shows as well oh, yeah. a few, few times, like amazing. And so just to wrap up, obviously ableism is still, unfortunately a very big problem. It is getting better, but it, it really can improve. So you would focus on disability awareness a lot on the hour, at least once a year, you would, you'd interview somebody with a disability. And again, primarily Michael J. Fox and Rick Hansen, but you've had others Others, but and also we would interview people who had a disability and the focus of the conversation wasn't the disability. Right. It was just the thing that they were interested in, the thing that they were an expert on, which I think is also an important part of this. Yes. And why did you feel it was so important to tackle ableism and why do you still feel like it's, it's an issue we should tackle? You know, it kind of goes back to that line, you know, if one suffers, all suffer. And, mm -hmm. and your fabulous life is not valuable if you're not helping other people, right? Who, who don't have access to your fabulous life. And, you know, it wasn't all just me. Like it wasn't me, it was my, my, my team, you know, like everybody we worked with, we hired people who's, who valued this and they taught us. They taught me things about ableism that I didn't know. And, and I, it is a, you know, you know that line that changes incremental, that's true. But what's more important to focus on is momentum. And if you have a platform, it is your responsibility to keep the momentum moving for the next crew. None of us can fix everything overnight, but it's not about fixing everything overnight. It's about what are you doing, right? So that's why it was always really important to us. It was important to us. We didn't get it right all the time. If you 
you know, because over time you realize that, oh my gosh, we had a lot of white guys on this show. How do you, you know, you, it, but you have to check yourself. It's, it's a process, right? It is an absolute process of momentum and you had to spend a lot of time focusing on that, but I was okay with it. I thought it was really important. You know, I thought it was really important. You know, I come from rock radio, right? Which is mostly white guys. And, and I remember I used to get this email regularly from somebody who would say, you don't play enough women artists. And I used to push back saying, you got to understand, I'm, I, I don't pick the songs, but also there are very few, right, that we're getting, which was, so she was right, 100% right. My argument was factual. But what I started to realize, I kept going back and forth with her. I don't even know her. I kept going back and forth with her. And I started to realize that, right. So regardless of the fact that my argument's factual, she is correct. So then I started to think, well, why don't I have access to more women rock stars, right? Well, then you start to understand this is remember, this is like the 90s and the 2000s. So conversations were different. Then you start to realize, oh, who's getting encouraged to be a part of it? What are the pathways? Where's the support? Who's the infrastructure? Where's the bias in a record label? Where's the bias with a publicist? Where's the bias with a publisher? Where's the bias with the media? So I started to realize that I internalized the challenge and said, it's my job to go find other people. I think we do a really good job of it now. It, but it took me a while to figure out why it wasn't working. Again, early days in that conversation. It's the same thing with, with this, right? Which is, Yes, there aren't as many people in these positions. Why? Well, let's let's start to un unpack how we got here and start to address, right? And I think that that's always been something important to me and the team, even if I didn't know those were the words. I didn't know, oh shit, that's what I'm trying to do. But again, it wasn't just me. I, I, I led in many respects, but I learned and was led by many others, by more than I led. So it was kind of like us together figuring out how to do this. Right. And, and it, it is such a large issue that it's, it's, you can't just focus on one thing. It's impossible. There's hundreds of factors, but yeah. what, what are your top lessons that you've learned from the disability community in like throughout your life? It kind of what you said about, the inspirational thing. I've really learned about, this is like talking when I was younger to where I am as I, as I grew up, right? The idea that the language matters in this, in this context. And the, what I learned was that you didn't have a lot of opportunities to see yourself and to be seen. And I learned that it was my responsibility to help you be seen because I can't do, I can't change legislation on everything. I can't, I'm not a I don't build condominiums. So that's not what I do, but what do I do? Well, all right, I am a person who connects the audience with ideas and people and creations, art, music, whatever, values, politicians. I try to shine a light on it. Well, that's what I do. Okay, so how can I be effective here? Well, my part is to help people be seen, you know? And so that's what I learned was I got to do my part. And I learned that language matters and I learned that choices matter. And I learned that, and this is true, not just with 
conversations around disability or accessibility, people who are often, you know, visibly able-bodied don't always know the right way to be effective. Mm -hmm. And if they get any pushback, they get like, oh, and they don't try anymore. What I learned a long time ago is I don't really care if I get it right all the time. And if I get it wrong and somebody gets mad at me, that's not a get out of jail free card, which means I don't have to try anymore. It just means I have to try differently. I have to try better. And that it is a process and kind of a moving target in a way, but the goal is the same, which is accessibility for everybody, everybody, physical, intellectual, whatever the thing is, whatever the reality is, our job is everybody's equal and has equity and all that. So it's like, okay. So I learned that, hey man, you don't, it doesn't fucking matter if you get it right every time. It's not an excuse to stop. Right. Keep pushing. And if you get pushed back, listen, listen, internalize it, understand it, do the next thing. And I, I didn't know that when I was 27, 8, 28, 31 years old on the air. I didn't know that because you get pushed back from public and you're like, ah, I don't know what to do. It's like, no, man, dig deep. He's digging deep. She's digging deep. They're digging deep. You should dig deep too. And I think that that was a really important lesson to learn. Definitely. And I think you really touched there on universal accessibility for everybody. It's not just for me in a wheelchair. It's for Jason with autism. It's for Mary with, with cerebral palsy. Like it's for everybody. It's for you. Like you can use some of the things that help us and it can make your life easier. Like it's not just, and and I think people get that wrong. They think, oh, it's just for people like me, just physical disabilities. No, it's for everybody on this planet to have equal access. You're right. You're right. And also if you don't use your energy to make sure somebody has a, as an easier path tomorrow, regardless of what you are in your life professionally. If you are an obstacle to inclusion, then you're an obstacle to inclusion. And I'm not one of those progressive lefties, I am, but I'm not one of those ones who looks at everybody and says, he'll get there. It's like, no, no, if you're an obstacle, you're an obstacle. (laughs) And I will call people out, be like, no, 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 no. Own your choices, but know that this is who you are. I watch people fight against, I can't even believe how developers, other people will fight against accessibility. There's no, there's no logic to it. There's no human logic. Oh, it's a cost saving measure. Okay. So that's the value then. Yet those same people lose it if something happens to their family. It's like, you don't just get to be upset when you're involved. You're supposed to take care of everybody always. That's our job as people. So that's, yeah, I think that's really important. I think it's really important. I learned that from my mom. My mom was just really about, hey, like you're here for other people. That's your job. Right. And I, I think that's that's definitely, your mom seems like an amazing woman and just so well-rooted with, with her morals. Like every moral you've explained just seems genuine. Well, George, I really do appreciate you being here today. And, and it was It was great to talk to you. And I really do appreciate you helping me raise the awareness because it's very dear to my heart. And, and I look forward to staying in touch. I hope. Hey, thanks so much for including me. I'm I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to, I mean, you are on my show. I'm happy to be on yours. You know, it's really nice to see you. Definitely. I'm going to stop.